The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize you are listening to ach i'm andy your host today first says it's time for a weekly visit for dr peter hammond my good friend so let's bring him up right now peter are you with us i am thank you andrew great to have you on as always and always nice to have a chat before the show we've come up with a little structure for you folks today's show is going to be part seven of mike king's the bad war of course mike was on yesterday um, but before we do that, we're going to uh, go through uh, two or three topics uh, very briefly. And uh, the first one is South Africa have got some elections coming up in the week, in about a week and a half. Peter, what can you tell us about the situation there? Well, I've just returned from the Transvaal, the north of our country, and I was a guest speaker at Krachtdag, or the Day of Power, it's a farmers' event, and uh, over 6,000 people a day, 20,000 come over a three day period. And about 600 stalls. We had our Frontline Fellowship and Christian Liberty bookstores there. A lot of homeschoolers. And you know, farmers are, are fighting a low level terrorism warfare. They're defending themselves against brutal, savage attacks. They're very isolated in these remote farms. And, and so it's very encouraging to see the resilience, the fortitude, the, the courage of, of these farmers. And such happy, cheerful people. It's also nice to be amongst a group of people where nobody saw the need to wear masks, uh, even though we're still under the masquerade madness mandate here in our country, where everyone's meant to wear masks at all times outdoors um, in public and so on, which is totally nonsensical, unscientific, ridiculous, unhealthy, and all the rest of it. So I was invited to speak uh, there, uh, although there's an overwhelmingly Afrikaans uh, uh, group of people. So I was the one Englishman or Roynick, as they would say, um, uh, at the venue. And uh, I was invited to speak on the resisting the new normal, the tyranny of the new normal and reclaiming our freedoms. And uh, they had a big tent with open sides uh, in the center of this whole expo. And uh, so people walking past would be attracted to come in. There's a grand piano and there were homeschoolers playing magnificent classical music and Christian hymns and so on with flutes and, and uh, harps and uh, with violins and so on. And between each presentation, I was also part of a panel discussion. And I must say, it, it was a very busy several days, wonderful time, lots of interest, great people, and just the creativity and innovation of these people. It just, again, in, in, uh, emphasized to me 
how adversity uh, strengthens character. And uh, certainly they've made plans, they're so innovative, so many things, because these people are hated by the government, maligned by the media, attacked by terrorists, and they are so self-sufficient. They've got solutions. They've got phenomenal ingenuity and creativity there. So I uh, thought that was encouraging. And also while in Pretoria, I was doing interviews and meetings about the upcoming elections, because uh, on the 1st of November, we've got municipal elections. And uh, there's so much discontent against the ruling ANC. Um, they should get slaughtered at the polls unless we get a kind of a Biden, American, free and fair election, uh, Dominion kind of uh, rigging. And we know there's always cheating and fraud in, in uh, African elections, but um, we are uh, certainly seeing a groundswell of opposition to the government, ineptitude, corruption, incompetence, uh, everything from the uh, scheduled power failures that are part of every week to the uh, failure of water supplies to the a failure of protection when it came to the looting spree in July when they were just destroying whole uh, suburbs, burning out whole warehouses, looting shopping centers, and, and the police stood by doing nothing. But they can weigh in and beat up peaceful pro-lifers and people who make a stand against mandatory vaccination passports. So we certainly hope that a lot of the population has learned something in the last 18, 19 months of lockdown lunacy and uh, masquerade madness. And now the mandatory vaccination passports are trying to push. Just this week, our insane government's trying to push mandatory vaccinations of children at school without the parents' knowledge or uh, approval, uh, permission. So you can imagine there's a lot of opposition. And um, we hope that's going to be visible in the election, but we expect a lot of fraud from the other side. So let's see how that goes. To help counter this, we've been putting out voters' guides. I've been doing this for 30 years, actually. Uh, the Biblical Issues Voters' Guides. People can go on the savotersguide.org website, SA for South Africa, savotersguide.org website, and we've got where the parties stand, biblical issues, and documentation and related God and government principles for using a vote and so on. So I had TV interviews over this, and... Um, we're getting billboards put up by friends in the uh, major uh, areas up there, Johannesburg, Pretoria, and so on, uh, to be able to reach a lot of traffic with a challenge where the government and the party stand on vaccinations, masquerade, madness, and on uh, the whole lockdown lunacy and to uh, call uh, people to uh, really punish those parties that support this in the upcoming election. So, that's been some what's going on. So do pray for us, 1st of November. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And on the subject of prayer as well, I've received some um, news that I didn't want to receive regarding Dave Gahari. He has gone a bit downhill while he's been in rehab, and I understand he is back on a ventilator. So please continue praying for him. He was going yes. all one way. Uh, he was getting better. That's why they moved him into a rehab facility. But something has happened. We're not quite sure. The details are sketchy. But I just got that this morning, so I wanted to share that with you. Um, and uh, next we've got uh, something that um, I had Eric Gajewski of uh did our joint show that went out, I think, on Tuesday this week. He's on every month. Um, but not on that show, the previous one, he mentioned how he had Celeste Salom on his show and she was saying that there was snake venom 
in the vaccines. And I found that quite strange. And I was talking to Peter after we recorded last week's show about it. And he's actually got quite an interesting story about snake venom. So, Peter, can you share that with the audience, please? Yes, I, I was um, uh, involved in one of my responsibilities required me going each month to uh, a, a particular ministry. And I was um, assisting them there. And I noticed on it was extraordinary how I would get violently ill after each time that I was there. And uh, considering I've traveled to 42 countries and I've been in some of the worst situations imaginable and eaten and drunk uh, in areas where uh, it's, it's hard not to get sick, like the Congo and Nigeria and Sudan and Rwanda and so on. So the fact that, um, uh, I, and of course in the field initially, as a newcomer, you do get sick uh, from everything, the water, whatever. It's, it's So I've had everything from tick bite fever, uh, black water fever, you name it. So um, uh, I've, I've got a pretty strong constitution these days. And for me to get violently ill was really strange because I could go a whole year or two without any kind of snivels or uh, any kind of problem at all. So this was strange. And I saw that this was multiple times in a row, every time, only when I came back from this particular ministry place. Now, I knew that there was one person there, the very person who served the tea or the lunch and so on, who supported the ANC and who I could tell from body language was hostile to me. And so I mentioned it to my wife and she said, well, um, uh, let me give you a packed lunch every time you go there. And so I told the people when I went next up, sorry, uh, my wife's got a special uh, diet prepared for me. Um, so I didn't take anything from them, even took my own bottled water. I didn't have tea, nothing, not a glass of water, nothing. And I no longer was sick ever again um, uh, like that. So uh, after a while, I mentioned this to a an experienced policeman and he said, oh, yes, she's probably gone to the witch doctor and gotten a snake um poison which they put in granule form and all they've got to do is they can sprinkle this on either the salad or they could uh, put it into your water or they could put it into the tea and that would give you these symptoms of uh, of, of being violently ill uh, because your body of course is uh, is trying to expel this poison which which would kill you if you didn't um sorry to use the words but vomit and so on so uh the um this policeman said no this is absolutely normal uh, witch doctors have these available and people who don't like the employer or someone uh, would come to the witch doctor that's these tribalists and, and witchcraft oriented people and they would get snake bite venom in granule form of course they'd have to pay quite a lot for it and then they could uh, make their employer or the person they don't like violently ill and of course if you get this uh, over a long period of time um, it can progressively weaken your system and uh, make you well, I mean, ultimately you can be killed if they, the, the thing is, because it was only been given to me once a month um, and um, there was lots of time in between because my body was expelling it, um, it, it wasn't having as much effect. But if they were giving a smaller dose more often, say at an employer's house on a daily basis, then, you know, that, that could kill them after a while and nobody would assume that they've been poisoned because they'd say, oh, well, you know, we're getting weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker. So I'm not surprised to hear that there can be snake bite serum actually in some of these vaccines. Uh, back to you, Andrew. That is a fascinating story. It really is. 
Um, and um, the other thing that uh, we're going to get into before we start, I got uh, a message from uh, my friend Misha Popoff, um, and he was on the Brian Rue show yesterday, and uh, he's discovered a new term for those who refuse to take the vaccine, and that is pure bloods. So if you refuse to take the vaccine, you're a pure blood. Now, I found that quite amusing um, and uh, quite accurate, actually. Uh, incidentally, uh, I'm pretty sure that this would be Brian's show. I know he does different shows for different... Uh, some things on uh, what's YouTube, and, of course, he got closed down off there. He does videos. and then. But I'm pretty sure he's on Revolution Radio every Tuesday, uh, and that would fit in because it's Wednesday as I'm recording this with Misha being on yesterday. So I'm going to go off to Revolution Radio and download Brian Wu's show this week to hear that. But the interesting thing was was that um, Misha also said um, that they've got an ID badge. And he emailed that over, and I'm opening this up in front of me now. And it's actually the German Iron Cross. And it's quite beautiful the way it's done. It's got a ribbon above it. It's got a couple of swords and... Uh, you know, what looks like a sort of leaf above that. It's very pretty. And on the Iron Cross, it says unvaccinated 2021. So I thought, when I first saw this earlier, I thought, this is brilliant. This is really good. But then I recounted uh, an article very recently. I think it was The Guardian in the UK that put it out, uh, where they said, oh, you know, we're seeing more and more anti-vaxxers are, anti are actually anti-Semitic, you know. And I thought, well, you know, am I going to play into their hands if I put this meme out? Um, and that was a concern that I had. So I spoke to Peter about it earlier because he knows a great deal, as you know, about military history, uh, which is why we're covering the bad war. Um, so, Peter, what would you... I mean, you've seen the image. Uh, you know that the Iron Cross yes. goes back long before the Third Reich, doesn't it? Yes, it, it certainly does. I mean, the, the Iron Cross actually uh, was being uh, used by the Teutonic Knights uh, way back in uh, the 1300s. Uh, and uh, as an award, as a formal award, it, it goes back uh, to 1871. Uh, the Prussian army was using it uh, during the um, uh, the campaigns against the French, but goes even back further than that. Um, in the campaigns in the French Revolutionary Wars in 1813, Frederick William III of Prussia commissioned the Iron Cross as a military decoration open to all ranks uh, for exceptional uh, courage. So, for example, Marshal Blucher, who came to the rescue of the British forces at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, he was wearing an Iron Cross, and that's depicted in all the, the different contemporary artwork of, of the time. So it's it's a bit bizarre to think that um, uh, there's something uh, inherently evil, strange, weird, anti-Semitic or so on about people making a stand against, well, the Iron Cross has always been a symbol of courage, uh, courage in battle. And these days it takes a lot of courage to go against the peer pressure and the media vilification and demonizing of uh, people who called anti-vaxxers. For persons who refuse to take the vaccination in this time of phenomenal pressure and bullying by this new inquisition with this new COVID cult, it, it does take courage. So I think that a person would go into history and find something that symbolizes courage under fire, courage in the face of the enemy. It seems quite appropriate. And by the way, I've seen the the term pure blood um, at our marches here in Cape Town, uh, people marching against the vaccinations and the vaccination passports. So I've seen people here using the, the poster, you know, pure, pure blood, meaning that they haven't got any of these toxins from Bill Gates's uh, vaccination companies in their veins. 
But interesting enough, I've also seen in missions that people who oppose tattooing speak about pure skins. So you get pure skins and then you get tattooed skins. So um, if people want to uh, try and politicize or make that anti-Semitic sigh, uh, it seems like, you know, to the BLM and so on, everything is racism. And to some of these characters, like the synagogue of Satan, everything's uh, anti-Semitic. And I don't think we should play that game. I think that's just ignorant um, using of stereotyping. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And funnily enough, I just dropped another, um, a guy called uh, Jeremy from Kentucky, who's a good friend of mine. He has the show in plain sight on the Republic Broadcasting Network that I listen to regularly. He's already got back to me on this message about the pure bloods and the emblem. And um, I'd never heard the term before this morning, but you had, and you heard pure skins as well. And he sent me another uh, pure blood image. And it's an image of somebody all dressed up. You can see it now. He's got what looks like goggles, a gas mask, and what have you on. He's there ready for combat. And it just says at the top, diary entry 21st of September in the year of our Lord 2024, I am still a pure blood. So it sounds like I was a little bit slow on the uptake with this one, folks, that many of you may have already heard about it. But I think it's quite good because it really, you know, it throws it back in their faces. We know that there's bad things in this vaccine because it's killed so many people. In the UK alone, we're up to over 1,700 and about 370,000 people injured. So it's doing, it's done that to these people. And we speculate as to what it's going to do longer term based upon the testimony of many doctors out there who have been speaking out. And also based upon the aggressive nature in which they're trying to get it into everybody's bodies. So if we can refer to ourselves, they keep humiliating us, anti-vaxxers and you know, all these things they try and um, you know, make nasty terms. If we say we're pure bloods because we haven't had this DNA altering that they admit, Klaus Schwab himself, that interview, you might remember Jeff Rents playing uh, recently, he said, um, you know, the next industrial revolution is going to change you. You are going to be genetically changed. And then they give us this thing that they tell us is a gene therapy, uh, changes your DNA, RNA, all this different stuff. So... What we're saying makes sense. What they're saying doesn't. So if we can give ourselves a nice term and a nice emblem, and that emblem, I will use it in a show in the future, but obviously today um, we want to continue using Mike King's book because this is a series, so we use the book cover. But it'll pop up. I'll put it up there. And, um, you know, we've clarified it for you today. And this is the, one of the most popular shows of the week. So I know most of you who listen to my show listen to this one. Uh, so that being said, let's wrap that one up. I said to Peter that we can go over today if necessary but um, we're going to now move on to part seven of the bad war so Peter where would you like to start us off today well Andrew I think uh, that's a very good point to start on you know the iron cross because let's face it the iron cross really represents courage phenomenal courage and you know we did a whole program on the eastern front by General Leon de Grela uh, the Belgian volunteer who fought in the eastern front and uh uh, there's no doubt that these people really earned the Iron Crosses. I mean, this this was this is a real badge of, of honor. But the media, the mass media, the lamestream media, the news, and and also the indoctrination gulag, so-called education textbooks, have given us a picture of German soldiers that makes them villainous and uh, inherently evil. Uh, so uh, Mike King's book. The Bad War, The Truth Never Told About World War II, 
includes the German soldiers' Ten Commandments. And I think this would be a revelation and quite fascinating to average person because it really goes against the narrative. So the German soldier uh, was given a Ten Commandments. Every soldier had it. It was part of his paybook. And uh, these Ten Commandments were as follows. And see if this uh, makes any sense in the light of the way how they've been depicted in many Hollywood films and many textbooks. So the German soldiers, Ten Commandments. Number one, while fighting for victory, the German soldier will observe the rules of chivalrous warfare. Cruelties and senseless destruction are below his standard. Number two, combatants will be in uniform or will wear specially introduced and clearly distinguishable badges. Fighting in plain clothes or without such badges is prohibited. Number three, no enemy who has surrendered will be killed, including partisans and spies. They will be duly punished by courts. Number four, prisoners of war will not be ill-treated or insulted in any way. While arms, maps, and records are to be taken away from them, their personal belongings will not be touched. Number five, dum-dum bullets are prohibited. Also, no other bullets may be transformed into dum-dum. That's where they made a, a cross across it that would expand or explode on impact. Number six, Red Cross institutions are sacrosanct. Injured enemy are to be treated in a humane way. Medical personnel and army chaplains may not be hindered in the execution of the medical or clerical duties. Number seven, the civilian population is sacrosanct. Neither looting nor wanton destruction is permitted to the soldier. Landmarks of historical value or buildings serving religious purposes, art, science, or charity are especially to be respected. Number eight, Neutral territory will never be entered, nor passed over by planes, nor shot at. It will not be the object of warlike activities of any kind. Number nine. If a German soldier is made a prisoner of war, he will tell his name and rank if asked for it. Under no circumstances will he reveal to which unit he belongs, nor will he give any information about German military, political, and economic conditions. Number ten. Offences of duty will be punished. Enemy offences against the principles under 1 to 8 are to be reported. Reprisals are only permissible on order of higher commands. And so uh, the German soldiers' 10 commands was actually stringently adhered to to such an extent that objectively reported in France and Belgium and elsewhere, the German soldiers were the best behaved and most honourable soldiers in the whole of the Second World War, which is the exact opposite of what we are generally told. But as Emma's King points out, that they behaved exceptionally well so that there were no known cases of uh, civilians being abused or women being raped in France and Belgium and Holland and so on because the German army was disciplined until they were liberated by the Allies and then there was colossal amounts of abuse uh, in the terms of hundreds of thousands of rapes and vast amounts of theft of civilian population uh, by the Allies, especially the Americans coming into France. Their behavior was... Uh, stark contrast, and that's the exact opposite of the way that the media tries to portray it. But interestingly, now M.S. King points out that the only exception to the German soldiers' Ten Commandments rules of conduct were when they were dealing with murderous communist partisans who did not recognize the rules of warfare on the Eastern Front. And so the communist partisans, commissars who were in the Eastern Front who were doing assassinations, backstabbing, uh, bombings uh, in, in rare areas. Uh, so the non-uniformed partisan prisoners who refused to surrender were 
sometimes hanged or shot at war criminals. They weren't treated as legitimate prisoners of war, uh, even though uh, the German um, soldiers, 10 commands, uh, would have even protected partisans, as it said specifically, but high commands uh, did rule them to be uh, treated uh, in some cases with summary executions. So aside from the Eastern Front, where there was a very real, clear and present danger of the partisans, or we would call them terrorists, uh, the German army's behavior towards the captured enemy was exemplary. And there are pictures here shown of how American prisoners of war in German captivity returned safe and sound off the war if they were in the western part. Unfortunately, those American prisoners of war in German camps in the eastern areas where the Soviet Red Army uh, overran, well, they disappeared and were never returned safely. But that was not because of the German uh, captors, that was because of the Red Army liberators. Contrary to the popular belief that life in an SS-run internment camp was a brutal existence of slave labor followed by extermination, the Germans went to great lengths to keep their Jewish inmates well-fed, well-housed, and even entertained. Now, this does not fit with the narrative, does it? So officials from the International Red Cross visited these camps regularly right up to the end of the war and had unrestricted access to them. Emma's King reports that in these camps, the so-called concentration camps, were orchestras of prisoners, soccer leagues, activities for children, there were weddings, bar mitzvahs, maternity wards for pregnant women. The Auschwitz camp even had a swimming pool for the inmates and a general store. And it's only during the final year of the war that conditions began to deteriorate as typhus epidemic spread, supplies diminished, and because of the Aerial bombardment, a thousand bomber raids that were destroying all the bridges and pipes and plumbing and electricity and uh, food supplies and medical supplies and the uh, factories that were producing medicines, that towards the very end, there were corpses that were cremated because of the typhus epidemic. Uh, they couldn't bury them near groundwater, but the destruction of so much of the critical infrastructure, not any massively increased deaths, uh, but when the camps were liberated, there were many healthy and seemingly well-fed Holocaust survivors. There were also some not so healthy, and those were photographed, and those photographs were more uh, spread. But we've gotten here pictures of the scorecards, the Jewish football teams, the orchestras, the the maternity wards and uh, swimming pools, things that you wouldn't normally see from Auschwitz and so on. So certainly MS King gives us a very different perspective on what is commonly given. Well, from 1941, one of the most extraordinary developments was the Waffen-SS volunteers from across Europe. Over 600,000 non-German Europeans from all over uh, volunteered to serve in the anti-Bolshevik Waffen-SS crusade against the Soviet Union. So there were brave men and women from every nation in Europe, and some even from Asia, who volunteered to fight the Soviets, and they were welcomed into the Waffen-SS, which, considering they're meant to be this um, racial supremacist group of Aryans, it may interest people to know that they actually had quite a lot of Asian uh, representatives in two and whole units that represented Asians, which uh, doesn't always fit with the with the scenario. They even had a Muslim uh, uh, group in the Buffen SS. So one million fought in the SS, and six hundred thousand were not German. And often officers in the Waffen-SS served in the front lines uh, next to their men. And 
half of all the commanders in the SS would be killed in action. In fact, hundreds of German generals died in action in the Second World War, uh, so uh, in the Wehrmacht. So uh, there's no doubt that they had a very high standard of their officers leading by example, being in the front line, taking the same risks as everyone else. Well, the winter of 1941 to 42 was one of the worst winters, uh, one of the most brutal, savage, freezing cold winters ever. And uh, the massive Soviet counteroffensive, which was able to be launched thanks to Western Lend-Lease aid and the massive amount of aid and supplies and tanks and aircraft and weaponry that the Americans were supplying the Soviets in the name of being the arsenal for democracy, but actually helping the greatest arsenal for uh, dictatorship in the Soviet Union. But 40% of the Waffen SS killed uh, in action or murdered after being um, uh, captured at the end of the war. So that's a phenomenal loss for any force. So of the of the 1 million Waffen SS troops who fought on the Eastern Front, 40% died. Um, and so their tenacity and their sacrifice was phenomenal. Um, and it is believed by M.S. King, and he quotes others, that all of Europe would have been lost to the Soviet hordes if it hadn't been for their sacrifices on the Eastern Front, um, not only by the Wehrmacht, but also by the SS, who are to this day vilified in the globalist press, not because they were brutal, but because they were so effective in killing millions of Marxists. In fact, nobody ever fought uh, Marxism more or inflicted more casualties amongst communists than the German army and its allies on the Eastern Front between 1941 and 1945. And then, just to also wreck the narrative of the popular media out there, uh, MS King includes details about Hitler's Jewish soldiers and his favorite Jewish doctor. Now, Hitler's meant to have been fanatically anti-Jewish, um, but MS King says, well, actually, he was anti-Marxist, and in many cases, the Marxists were Jews, there were 60,000 half-Jewish and 90,000 quarter-Jewish soldiers in the German army who fought. And many of these were highly decorated soldiers, officers, even some generals and admirals. And uh, Adolf Hitler personally intervened to protect and, and look after Dr. Edward Bloch, a notable Jewish medical doctor who had treated Hitler's cancer-stricken mother in Austria. So Hitler never forgot his kindness and inquired about him when he returned to Austria in 1938. And on his orders, Bloch was given special protection. And uh, even when the war ended and Bloch was interviewed by the OSS, which later became the CIA, he spoke very highly of Adolf Hitler that he had known, that uh, he had never experienced anything but, um, but good treatment and uh, excellent behavior, which doesn't fit the narrative, which is why you probably haven't heard of Dr. Edward Bloch. There's a book uh, here by Brian uh, Mark Rigg, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, the Untold Story of Nazi Racist Laws and the Men of Jewish Descent in the German Military, which completely and utterly um, destroys the narrative uh, of fanatical anti-Jewish mindlessness. And the point is, obviously, there were some Jews who were treated uh, with brutality because they were part of the Marxist terrorism uh, the partisan attacks and so on. And uh, you can understand in wars against terrorism, soldiers do that. But the policy was not against all Jews because many Jews 
were even in Hitler's high command. There we had Adolf Hitler even having a Jewish driver and having a, a Jewish doctor and having um, uh, one of his bodyguard, in fact, was even Jewish in this in the SS, no less, uh, which is, you know, really destroys the narrative there. So Japan, in August 1941, appeals to America for peace talks to end the war with China. But America was, and we've got the newspaper headlines, and yet America was determined to see that the forces in China fighting Japan uh, were supported and the war continued. In September the 11th, 1941, Charles Lindbergh, the great American hero aviator who had flown across the Atlantic, the first solo uh, flight across the Atlantic. Well, Charles Lindbergh Jr. accused Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Jews of plotting to drag America into the war. And so Charles Lindbergh, um, who led the America First movement, and uh, you might recall people went quite hysterical when Donald Trump used the term America First because they said, this is what Charles Lindbergh did. Well, what was so bad about Charles Lindbergh? And what's so bad about America First? Because the America First movement rejected globalism, rejected globalist propaganda, and wanted to put America first and not get involved in Europe's wars or entangling alliances, which is exactly what George Washington had advised when he was president. Well, um, here uh, Lindbergh said in a speech, the leaders of the British and Jewish races, for reasons which are understandable from their point of view, as they are inadvisable from ours, for reasons which are not American, wish to involve us in this war. And of course, he opposed the idea that why should America be dragged into another of Europe's wars? Nothing good came out of the last time in America's involvement in 1917 and 1918. And uh, the world is immeasurably worse as a result. It would have been better if they stayed out of it. And we should stay out of this one, too. Well, Joseph Kennedy, the American ambassador to England and patriarch of the Kennedy family dynasty, also expressed this opinion. Um, even though he was America's ambassador, he strongly opposed the American uh, government's policy of FDR of fomenting war and getting America involved in the war. Well, FDR, now from October to November, really keeps baiting and provoking Japan, escalating acts of war against Japan, uh, economic warfare against Japan, imposing devastating oil and trade embargoes in Japan, denying her ships access to the neutral Panama Canal, ordering American battleships to undertake pop-up cruisers throughout Japanese territorial waters as a provocation. And finally, November the 26th of 1941, FDR sent an impossible ultimatum to Japan, threatening military action, demanding that Japan withdraw all their troops from China, where they were busy in a fight to the death against the communists in, in China. Now, bearing in mind that Japan was the greatest anti-communist force holding communism back in the, the East, just as Germany and Italy were the primary anti-communist forces in the West. And so America is plainly taking a pro-communist position of opposing and, and provoking an anti-communist power like Japan, who had been Britain's ally in the First World War, by the way, um, and, and a very effective one too, and had been very pro-Western until America had insisted that, that um, uh, Britain break her uh, long-time alliance with Japan in the 1920s. And as a result, uh, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, recorded in his personal diary the topic of meeting with FDR as possible as follows. The question was not uh, whether we should go to war, but how we can maneuver Japan into the position of firing the first shot. So this whole 
charade of saying that Pearl Harbor, 7th of December, date that will live in infamy, suddenly, without provocation, without any warning. Uh, well, that's not actually true. And uh, there are newspaper headlines in <laughs> Ms. King's book, including uh, the uh, November article where it says on the Honolulu advertiser, the headline, banner headline, Japanese may strike over weekend. So this long predates the December the 7th attack of 1941. And so the idea that this was unprecedented, never expected, nobody could have been, no, not at all. So MS King documents how Japan took FDR's bait and how the attack on Pearl Harbor was wanted by America and America knew of it ahead of time. And that's actually pretty shocking. So while issuing final provocations on Japan, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and George Marshall, who is chief of staff, set the actual bait for the Japanese fish to bite. And that was, they dangled the American Pacific fleet right out in Pearl Harbor. Now, many people may think, oh, well, Pearl Harbor surely where the US fleet was. No, the uh, headquarters, uh, the main port for the US Pacific fleet was San Diego. And so by order of George Marshall, because FDR told him to, they put the whole Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor, which is actually a very dangerous place to put it because it's a single um, gateway into the harbor. You've got the entire Pacific fleet there. If the Japanese could have sunk one battleship in the channel, it would have bottlenecked the entire fleet in there uh, for months and months uh, because there was only one way in. It, it, it wasn't a good harbor. It wasn't a safe harbor. It was, in fact, very vulnerable. But there was a reason why they put, and the commanders there said, this is an indefensible position. Very dangerous to have the entire Pacific fleet bottled up in Pearl Harbor, which is not an ideal location uh, for the Pacific fleet. And so it was put both as a knife threatening Japan, but also as bait for Japan to take, and, J and Japan took the bait. And FDR and Winston Churchill wanted Japan to attack. And both America and Britain had cracked Japan's naval communication codes early on, which is why fax machines were invented, to be able to take Japanese text, because uh, obviously telegraph wouldn't work when you don't have the uh, alphabets that we use. And so they needed to invent a technology in the 1920s. The fax machine was invented specifically for naval communications to be able to uh, decipher uh, the intercepted Japanese naval communications by a wireless radio by shortwave. And so uh, even though they knew of the attack, even knew of the time of the attack, everything about it, because all this had been cracked, and this is not a th conspiracy theory, the files had been unleashed uh, and finally after 60 years. And uh, so uh, just as in the case of GCHQ, we had a whole program dealing with the secret war which Max Hastings put together based on all these uh, secret descripts which had been uh, covered for the last 60 years, uh, but now are available. And in the attack, 2,400 American sailors were killed. And this ignited, of course, frenzy in the press and a wave of patriotic fervor. And so the American First Committee disbanded as people were just absolutely determined to go to war. And uh, the great deceiver, FDR is um, uh, depicted here playing innocent while addressing nation. And uh, so sadly, after Pearl Harbor, Congress declared war on Japan and uh, 
Germany declared war on America. And uh, from the diary of FDR's war secretary, Henry Stimson, he wrote, when the news first came that Japan had attacked us, my first feeling was of great relief that the crisis had come in a way which would unite all our people. This continued to be my dominant feeling in spite of the news of catastrophes, which quickly developed. Imagine the Secretary of War feeling relief at the Battle of Pearl Harbor, at the destruction of the most of the uh, U.S. Pacific fleet. Absolutely extraordinary. Well, again, to destroy the narrative, here's the declaration of war from Emperor Horiisha, which, by the way, was received by the Americans before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, yet the American government chose not to inform the officers in command at Pearl Harbor that Japan was at war with them. So here's the declaration of war, and it says, we hereby declare war upon the United States of America to ensure the stability of East Asia and to contribute to world peace is the far-sighted policy which was formulated by great illustrious imperial grandsire to cultivate friendship amongst nations, to enjoy prosperity in common with all nations, has always been the guiding principle of our empire's foreign policy. It has truly been unavoidable and far from our wishes that our empire has been brought to cross swords with America and Britain. More than four years have passed since China, failing to comprehend the true intentions of our empire, recklessly causing trouble, disturbed the peace in East Asia, compelled our empire to take up arms. Although there has been re-established the national government of China, which Japan has effectively neighborly intercourse and cooperation with the regime which has survived in Chongqing relying upon American and British support still continues its fratricidal opposition. Eager for the realization of the ambition to dominate the Orient, both America and Britain giving support to the Chongqing regime have aggravated the disturbances in East Asia. Moreover, these two powers inducing other countries to follow suit, increased military preparations on all sides of our empire to challenge us. They've obstructed by every means our peaceful commerce. They finally resort to direct severance of economic relations, menacing greatly the existence of our empire. Patiently have we waited, long have we endured, in the hope that our government might retrieve the situation peace. But adversaries, showing not the least spirit of conciliation, have unduly delayed the settlement. In the meantime, they've intensified the economic and political pressure to compel our empire to submission. This trend of affairs, if left unchecked, would not only nullify our efforts of many years for the sake of the stabilization of East Africa, but endanger the very existence of a nation. And this being as it is, for our existence and self-defense, we've had no recourse but to appeal to arms to crush all obstacles. And so uh, this uh, war declaration actually appeared in a page of the New York Times, <laughs> and then somewhere along the line, it disappeared down the black hole of official history that Japan had attacked without declaration of war. I wonder how many listeners have even heard that Japan gave a declaration of war, let alone um, what the text was. And then Hitler's declaration of war on America um, is also something that M.S. King gives here, which most people don't know about. And it's from December the 11th. Starting from November 1938, Franklin Delano began systematically to sabotage every possibility of European peace. In public, he hypocritically claimed to be interested in peace, while at the same time threatened every country that was ready to pursue a policy of peaceful understanding and cooperation by blocking credits, economic reprisals, calling in loans, and so on. In this regard, the reports of the Polish ambassadors 
in Washington, London, Paris, and Brussels provide shocking insight. FDR increased his campaign of incitement to war in January 1939. In a message to the U.S. Congress, he threatened to take every message, every measure short of war against our societies, our countries. I will overlook as meaningless the insulting attacks and rude statements made by the so-called president against me personally. That he calls me a gangster is particularly meaningless since this term does not originate in Europe, where such characters are uncommon, but originates in America. Quite aside from that, I cannot feel insulted by Mr. Roosevelt because I regard him like his predecessor Woodrow Wilson as mentally unsound. We know that this man with his Jewish supporters has operated against Japan the same way. I need not go into that here. The same methods used in that case as well. The man incites to war. Then he lies about its causes. Then he makes baseless accusations. He repugnantly wraps himself in the cloak of Christian hypocrisy while at the same time steadily leading humanity into war. Finally, as the old Freemason he is, he calls upon God to witness that his actions are honorable. His shameless representation of truth, his violations of law are unparalleled in history. I am sure that all of you have regarded as an act of deliverance that a country like Japan has finally acted to protest against all this in the very way that this man had actually hoped for. And which should not reprise him because the attack on Pearl Harbor was well known to him. After years of negotiating with this deceiver, the Japanese government finally had its full of being treated in such a humiliating way. All of us, and the German people and I believe, and all decent people around the world as well, regard this with deep appreciation. We know the power behind Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's the same eternal Jew that believes that his hour has come to impose the same fate upon us, that we've all seen experience with horror in the Soviet Russia. We have gotten to know firsthand the Jewish paradise on earth. Millions of German soldiers have personally seen a land where this international Jewry has destroyed and annihilated millions of people and much property. Perhaps the President of the United States does not understand that. If so, that only speaks for his intellectual narrow-mindedness. We know that his entire effort is aimed at this goal. Even if we were not allied with Japan, we would still realize that the Jews and their Franklin Roosevelt intend to destroy one state after another. The German Reich of today has nothing in common with Germany of the past. For our part, we will now do what this provocateur has been trying to achieve for years. And not just because we're allied with Japan, but because Germany and Italy, with their present leaderships, have strength and insight to realize this historic period, the existence or non-existence of entire nations, is being determined, perhaps for all time. What this other world has in store for us is clear. They were able to bring the democratic Germany of the past to starvation, and they seek to destroy the national socialism of the Germany today. When Mr. Churchill and Mr. Roosevelt declare that they want to build a new world order, that's about the same as a bald-headed barber recommending a tonic guarantee to make hair grow. Rather than incite war, these gentlemen who live in the most socially backward countries should have concerned themselves with their own unemployed people. They have enough misery and poverty in their own countries to keep themselves busy, ensuring a just distribution of food there. But as far as the German nation is concerned, we don't need anyone's charity, neither from Churchill nor Roosevelt. But we do demand our rights. And what we will do is ensure our right to life, even if a thousand Churchills and Roosevelts conspire together to prevent it. Now, that is word for word, quote unquote, from Adolf Hitler in his post-Pearl Harbor speech. Now, this doesn't sound like the ranting and raving that is so often caricaturing of the German leader at that time. Well, 
at this stage, MS King brings out the Manhattan Project, the super secret atomic bomb project, which was infested with communist spies from the beginning. And so this, led by America with participation from British scientists, were producing the world's first atomic bomb. Einstein had first proposed this in 1939 to FDR, and it employed 130,000 people at 30 locations. Entire secret cities were built to house these workers, all sworn to secretly, secrecy, and most of them totally unknowing uh, of what the big picture was. But there were tremendous concerns about the security. And so uh, they had to, they had people resigning because of the lack of security. And a Jewish communist physicist, Robert Oppenheimer, was in charge and overseeing the entire project in New Mexico. Pardon me, as I just needed some water. So as Oppenheimer looked the other way, the communist spies were passing American secrets and British secrets into Stalin's very hands. And at the end, in 1954, Oppenheimer's secret uh, clearance, his security clearance, would be revoked when it was proven that he was a communist. But the Soviets by then had already stolen most of the formula for the atomic bomb. Also interesting, which you don't get in the average history books, is Franklin Delano Roosevelt's executive order 9066 condemned 110,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry to concentration camps in America. And 62% of them were actually American citizens. But the Supreme Court said, well, that doesn't matter. Then executive order 9095 froze all assets of German-Americans and Italian-American families who were also interned in the camps, not in the same numbers as Japanese, uh, but unlike Germany's internment of Jews who were hostile to Germany and the terrorist partisans and the thieving gypsies and other Reds, FDR's internment were all of law-abiding, peaceful, patriotic citizens who are loyal to America and it's been proven the internments in America were actually unjustified because there's no reported case of any sabotages being done in America by any of these people or their relatives, whereas there's thousands and tens of thousands of terrorist accidents and uh, sabotage and uh, uh, actual destruction done uh, by the partisans in Eastern Europe and uh, which Germany was responding to a genuine threat within. And so uh, the Americans were mobilizing the people to manufacture goods, which they said was going to go to the uh, arsenal for democracy. And there's some magnificent, interesting uh, propaganda that they put out there all over the place. And uh, But this propaganda was just not uh, true or fair because all the sacrifice American workers were making to produce the tanks and the trucks and the uh, aircraft and the bombs and the bullets and all the rest, um, the vast amount of them end up in the hands of the communists. And so, so much for the arsenal for democracy. Well, the Battle of Midway was a turning point in the Pacific War in, in 1942, uh, which was because the Allies had cracked the code of the Japanese, as they had of Germany too. And so the whole way through the war, as we documented in the secret war by Max Hastings, that uh, in fact, just about all the depictions of the war are false and need to be rewritten in the light of the GCHQ uh, Enigma code-breaking machines that uh, were uh, brought out, which enabled uh, Project Purple, where both American and British intelligence were reading in real time the communications 
from the high commands of both Germany and Japan uh, to their forces. They knew the exact disposition, plans, and intentions of the enemies ahead of time. And so things like the Battle of Midway and Battle of Stalingrad were all, uh, you can only understand it when you understand that the enemy knew exactly the disposition of the German or Japanese forces in each case uh, as a result of these intelligence um, advances that they had with Enigma and Project Purple. November 1942, Operation Torch, the Allies uh, came and attacked uh, French North Africa. Now, France is meant to be a, an ally, uh, but nevertheless, they they killed a whole lot of Frenchmen uh, in attacks on the French Navy, which interestingly, the German government never required, and the German Navy never commandeered any of the French Navy. And uh, yet the British, just in case the Germans might make use of it sometime, uh, destroyed these French battleships and surprise attacks, um, killing thousands of, of Frenchmen who were meant to be the Allies. But again, many people don't hear that. And so uh, Germany suddenly sandwiched between the Americans in North Africa and the British from Egypt were able to uh, outflank General Erwin Rommel's small Africa corps who were massively over, um, uh, they were outnumbered and outsupplied in every way. And if you've seen some of these um, films like Raid on Rommel and Tobruk and uh, so many different films on Second World War, they've got absolutely ahistoric, ridiculous depictions of the Africa Corps having unlimited supplies of thousands of tanks. In, in fact, the Africa Corps was always very smallly supplied uh, and they were always running short. And at the Battle of El Alamein, I think Germany barely had 24 operational tanks. And uh, yet the depiction of these is like that the Allies were outnumbered and managed to beat Germany, even though Germany outnumbered them. But the reality is the German forces in the Africa Corps, North Africa, were always outnumbered. And there was something like 10 to 1 against the Africa Corps in terms of aircraft, tanks, weaponry, personnel, and all the rest. And my father, who fought in North Africa and uh, Eighth Army under Montgomery, Field Marshal Montgomery, um, he, he uh, said himself that he didn't believe any of this nonsense given on TV that uh, demonized the Germans because he knew the Africa Corps were gentlemen and Erwin Rommel was a gentleman and uh, he never heard of any atrocities in North Africa and he doesn't believe any of these atrocity stories about the Germans because he knew how um, they behaved with great chivalry and concern for their defeated enemies. And uh, they normally won, even though they were outnumbered many times over, uh, frequently 10 to 1. And so uh, the whole depiction in just about all the Hollywood movies, where the Germans somehow always outnumbering the Allies, which never happened, and that the Allies managed to win uh, by superior fighting ability against the Germans, who seemed to have no ingenuity and had wooden minds and one-dimensional characters, it was exactly the other way around. Some of the most innovative military actions were taken by the Germans who were almost always outnumbered and no more so than on the Eastern Front than where they were outnumbered 20 to 1 on the Eastern Front. And it just and they weren't just fighting the Reds, they were fighting Western technology because Britain, Canada and the United States of America were giving them everything, Spitfires and Sherman tanks and hurricanes and uh, bombers and just phenomenal amount of weaponry. Uh, that was being poured into the Soviet Union. So it didn't matter how many tens of thousands of aircraft and tanks of the Red Army Germany destroyed, the Soviets always had more because the Allies were supplying them through Mamansk, through Persia, uh, Iran, 
fact, America invaded uh, the independent neutral country of Persia to provide a safe, easy way to channel weapons into the Soviet Union. And many Americans were flying in more aid across from Alaska into uh, the Soviet Union from the east and being able to resupply them dramatically. So with whether by land, sea or air, Soviet Union was getting the arsenal for democracy to strengthen their dictatorship. And so in 1943, the tide started to turn against Germany and North Africa and on the east being overwhelmingly outnumbered. And uh, uh, Stalingrad was the first of the great disasters where the German army, the sixth army at Stalingrad, surrendered. And although 30, there were um, something uh, along the line of 91,000 men surrendered. Only 6,000 survived Soviet uh, prison uh, imprisonment. So uh, most of that 90,000 died under the inhuman conditions and Arctic hellholes of Siberia where they were marched. And that was pretty horrific. So Germany from 1943 was basically fighting a defensive war uh, because mainly because of American weaponry and, and massive amount of extra personnel. But the Allies were firebombing them, coming in with a thousand bomber raids, incinerating whole cities. 62 German cities were incinerated. Thousand bomber raid deployed, for example, Operation Gomorrah on Hamburg. 3,000 aircraft, 9,000 tons of bombs killed 42,000 people uh, in 10 days of the British came every night and the Americans came every day and bombing by day and night until the entire city was an inferno. A quarter of a million homes destroyed, a million Germans, uh, refugees without homes, uh, dehoused, as Churchill would put it. And that was Operation Gomorrah. At the same time, Churchill decided to have a famine in India um, because he thought there was a possibility that Japan might occupy um, uh, parts of India. So he had vast amounts of rice uh, bought up and hoarded and ordered diversion of food away from India towards British troops around the world. And so the price of rice in India shot up fourfold and wheat from Australia, which could have been delivered to the starving Indians, uh, he ordered uh, transported elsewhere. And again and again, Churchill ordered that um, uh, the food even from America that was being offered to India not get there. And he said that he hated the Indians and they bred like rabbits and they uh, needed to depopulate. So there's Winston Churchill not exactly caring about the rights of the Indians. And two million Indians died in the Bengal famine of 1943 as a result of these policies. So after North Africa fell to the Allies with a massive American invasion operation torch in North Africa in the French area and a huge amounts of resupplying of Montgomery's forces from Egypt. And so the Africa Corps was overwhelmed and uh, the south of Europe was now invaded, starting with Italy and uh, with Sicily and then Italy. And you could see that at this point, there could have easily been the invasion of, of the heartland of Europe from what Churchill called the soft underbelly of Europe. And this required Germany having huge amounts of forces in the south of Europe. So Germany was not fighting a two-front war, but more like a four-front war. The, the war was on so many fronts. They were so overextended. It's extraordinary how they stood for so long. Now, there was this, um, there've been a few of these bizarre films out like The Monuments Men, which give the impression uh, and there's whole books out on how the Nazis looted art and so on, which 
even before I hadn't before I'd read this book by Ms. King, I knew it had to be a lie because how could the Allies care about the art uh, and culture of Europe when their thousand bomber raids were coming over and incinerating entire cities, including museums and churches and uh, all the great uh, art of these uh, countries along with the people. So, uh, in fact, as Ms. King points out, that uh, because of the concern of Germans for art being the most highly cultured people in the world, you know, we're talking about this, this is the land of, of Handel and uh, um, Bach and, and Mozart and so on. And so uh, just insane to think that the Germans hated art, which is the way it's being portrayed today. And no, uh, even under Kaiser Wilhelm II during the First World War, uh, there was a special project and, and groups uh, called um, Kuntschutz or Art Protection Units. And they had to go in and protect and preserve artworks in areas of combat. And uh, the, uh, the Führer himself was a talented painter, and he had great appreciation for art and culture. And he saw Churchill and FDR as uncultured savages who were mercilessly disregarding innocent life, architecture, and works of art. And so Hitler ordered, as had Kaiser Wilhelm II in the First World War, the protection of art throughout the combat theaters of war. And so he handed over the task of protecting the art to Air Vice Marshal Hermann Goering. And as the Allied terror bombings ravaged Europe and with thousand bomber raids coming over in flattening cities, he ordered that the paintings, the sculptures of, of the different countries threatened were gathered and inventoried meticulously and protected. Many of them in, in um, mines uh, in, protected by mountains. And so extraordinary how this now was uh, put forward as the Nazis looted art. Well, actually, they were trying to save the art uh, from the thousand bomber raids incineration by the Allied uh, Operation Gomorrah type operations of flattening and incinerating entire cities. So the Monuments Men film and other Hollywood nonsense is just a, a, a travesty and it's an inversion of the reality. So you get in here so many details and so much information which which you wouldn't get normally, such as the massive Russian army of, of volunteers, 300,000 Russian prisoners of war volunteered to fight for Germany. How many people know of that? Of the Russian Liberation Army of General Andrei Vlasov, who uh, fought uh, alongside the German allies against the communists. And uh, also uh, exposed here is how Eisenhower and Marshall postponed the American advance to enable Stalin to reach Berlin first. And so they they delayed and delayed D-Day, they delayed the Western Front opening, they even delayed the um, invasions from Italy and the advances there in order to allow the Soviets to be able to get into the heartland of Germany because the goal was that the Soviets must get to Berlin first. And uh, Dwight Eisenhower was in fact a very low echelon uh, person at the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, a major and um, George Marshall decided to promote Eisenhower uh, over scores of senior officers and made him uh, the uh, officer in charge of all Allied forces in uh, Europe, even though he wasn't a person who'd ever been in combat. In fact, Eisenhower never heard combat and never heard a shot fired in anger. He was a, an administrator, he was a, a politico. And that's why a book on Eisenhower was entitled The Politician. He might have worn a military uniform, but he wasn't a soldier in the same like as George Patton, who fought in the front line, or Rommel for that matter. And so there's interesting exposés about these, um, the, what seemed like geopolitical blunders 
which enabled Stalin to steal so much of Eastern Europe were not blunders at all, but were laying the foundations for the New World Order, globalist government, and FDR's globalist gang were already creating and planning the post-World War in which the Soviets in the United States would join forces to lay the foundations for New World Order in the person of the United Nations, which was being set up with a communist agent, KGB agent, in fact, uh, Alga Hiss, because it does seem that FDR only appointed communists to important positions. FDR appointed a communist to set up the OSS, uh, um, which is the forerunner for the CIA. Uh, he had a communist set up the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, another communist setting up the United Nations. And uh, the way how it was working was not blunders. It was not accidental. It was intentional. So there's more to go. I think we might be able to finish the series next week. But uh, let me hand back to you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. So much information, and um, you, you really sort of break it down very well. And I know that, um, you know, uh, Mike King does a fantastic job as well. I told him, I told, I heard him on another show, not the one I did with him uh, yesterday, but he was talking about how it's a lot easier than people think to, you know, get history out to people in an easy to understand and interesting fashion. And um, I know you read all sorts of books and you've uh, covered them here. Many books that you know, I certainly would struggle to digest because they're extremely long and they're very wordy and what have you. Mike has a different style. That's not to knock those other books that, um, you know, people can write in a very nice manner, a uh, very skillful manner and things like that. But Mike, as I say, he just likes to get it out in as few words as possible. Um, and that is, I think, really why this book has become so popular because you get so much information in such a short amount of pages and I think you've been doing a tremendous amount of justice to the book on our series and um, folks there is no copyright on uh, this show so if you want to you know put these up elsewhere then please do so it'd be nice to see this go up as a series somewhere that people can really get the whole book in one what are we were seven hours now seven shows seven hours uh, so I'm finishing next week or the week after I've, I've said to Peter there's no hurry just to tackle it exactly how he wants to see fit we had some other bits to throw in for you uh, earlier in the show that I thought were important and uh, certainly the third one about the um, the pure bloods and the iron cross linked right into uh, today's show so Peter anything else that you would like to say before we wrap this one up uh, and also please give the audience your uh, website and how they can contact you Thank you. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, or as Americans would say, ZA. And uh, our website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, short for South Africa, so frontlinemissionsa.org. Uh, we're based in Cape Town. Uh, I have ministered in 38 countries around the world, especially in a lot of communist countries. My main emphasis has been serving persecuted churches, which is why I've got interested in how did we get in such a mess? How is it that the uh, the British and Americans were allies with the Soviet Union when obviously the Soviet Union is uh, unbelievably evil and they were a clear and present danger to us in Rhodesia? So my experiences growing up in the war zones of Rhodesia and uh, serving in the South African army and uh, uh, ministering in countries such as Angola and Mozambique and all the way to Romania, Poland, down to Albania in the south, uh, I've Ministers throughout Eastern Europe back in the 80s when it was under communist control 
it just forced me to rethink my understanding of history. And uh, uh, over the years, it's been like unraveling a phenomenal deception. And Emma's King has certainly helped with a single volume introduction. There's so many great books out there. But as an introduction, this one should whet people's appetites to get the real story on what went on in the Second World War. Because we know the Second World War was the greatest event of the 20th century, which has affected everything. And if we want to know why we're in the particular situation we are now, we need to understand that. And we need to understand from a perspective different from the perpetrators or their fellow travelers and friends, uh, or what Lenin called useful idiots, uh, what they've been depicting, because it just doesn't make sense. If the good guys won the Second World War, why are things worse and worse ever since? Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Absolutely. And folks, don't forget that in the link, uh, in the post for our shows together, I always include a link to uh, Peter's archives of all our shows. And he mentioned the Max Hastings book. If this is a topic that you're interested in, as Peter said, then there are not just other books, but there's other shows we've done on World War Two and uh, many other events. Um, but treat it as a lead in. It's like when I uh, put the Synagogue of Satan together, I kind of did it in such a way that I got a lot of this information from other books, you know. Well, it was all from other other work. It, I, I didn't interview anyone directly. Uh, I made that quite clear. But someone might, for example, read about uh, the Kennedy assassination, and then you know, I'm really interested in that. So the next stop for that would be Michael Collins Piper's Final Judgment. Um, so little things like that. Have a think about it, different directions that you want to go in. But that being said, we are out of time, so I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. You have been listening to... The Real Story Behind the Bad War by MS King Part 7. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And bye.